This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Coleman. And we join you here every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We are replayed throughout the week, and you can also find us on demand on the SiriusXM app. So we're there whenever you want us and need us. Yeah, if you're like, gosh, you know, I'm just missing Nick Ashburn's <laughs> voice or Cheryl Coleman's very soothing, calming NPR-like voice. Why don't you just find us on demand? Exactly, exactly. You never have to be alone. <laughs> you never have to be alone. So our first guest who will join us in just a moment will be Steve Grossman. Steve's the CEO of the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City, and we'll get a sense of the great work they're doing in that space. Exactly. And Cheryl, you've been a bit of a fan of, of ICIC I, for a I think while. They do, I think they do great work. I mean, we, you know, living in an inner city and having the school here, it, it's really trying to figure out what is it that how do, how do businesses thrive in an inner city? What do we know about it? How do we make it work? And when you think about the uh, percentage of the population that live in urban areas in inner cities and increasingly across the globe more and more, this is a really important initiative that really tries to say, how do we make this work? Absolutely. Without further ado, let's welcome Steve Grossman, CEO of the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City to the show. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, good morning, Cheryl. Good morning, Nick. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. And and Steve, so you're leading, you know, such a really exciting effort. Yeah. Uh, but before we dive directly into ICIC, tell us a little bit about your background. So graduated from business school, uh, spent four months in the Army, joined my family business, which is a 108-year-old, wow. fourth-generation now a marketing communications company here in Boston that does work all over the country. Ran that business for about 35 years, had a short stint at Goldman Sachs back in the uh, early stage of my career. Then um, in 2009, in the middle of the worst days of the worst recession of our lifetime, I decided to run for office uh, again, and I ran for state treasurer and got elected state treasurer in Massachusetts, served for four years in that capacity. And Lost the primary to Martha Coakley, Democratic primary nomination process in 2014. And one day I went to see Dr. Michael Porter at Harvard Business School, whom you both know. And we were talking, and all of a sudden he said, Steve, I started this organization called ICIC, the Initiative for Competitive Inner City, 20 years ago. And frankly, this could be scaled nationally, and you're the guy to do it. How would you like to become CEO? Six weeks later, I said yes. And I've been doing it now for almost four years. Along the way, I uh, had a chance when Bill Clinton was president to be chairman of the Democratic National Committee. And so I've had a lot of years in business, running a, um, a, a rapidly growing family business in politics, in philanthropy, and now running a rapidly growing non-for-profit that I think is helping to change inner cities and create the kind of level playing field, or as I like to put it, inclusive Prosperity. That's the bumper yep, sticker yep. that we really are focusing on every single day. Inclusive prosperity. How do you level the playing field, particularly in our inner cities or our distressed or underserved communities? So, Steve, that, that's a great point that you bring up, and I want to follow up on that. So if you think about either what really convinced you to take the helm of ICIC or, you know, help us understand the pain point that ICIC is trying to address. Um, help our listeners understand where you're coming from. So Michael Porter, when he created the organization in 1994, did so in the belief that inner cities could be revitalized. A lot of people scratched their heads in 97 when he wrote a 
seminal paper in which he said inner cities actually have competitive advantages. And people said, what are you talking about? I was going to say, right, you must be crazy. Yeah, you must be crazy. And he said, no, inner cities have competitive advantages. Number one, there's density of population. There's a lot of purchasing power. Even though people don't earn as much in the inner cities, there's a lot of purchasing power. Number two, businesses in the inner city are close to transportation hubs. It's relatively easy to get your goods to market. Number two, there are a lot of people who could work in your businesses. If you train them appropriately, it could be a powerhouse. And he said, government money, while it's helpful, is not going to solve the problem. Inner cities will be revitalized because of private sector small business growth. In other words, the genius of entrepreneurship in the private sector in the inner city and private sector capital has got to flow into the inner city. It wasn't happening 20 years ago, 21 years ago, when he wrote the paper. But if you ask me about the pain points, I would say there are five things that inner city businesses need desperately, and they're all, they all begin with C. They need capacity building, executive education, strategy, marketing, uh, leadership, leadership effectiveness, entrepreneurial finance. They need coaching. They need capital which has been a brick wall for most intercity businesses for a long, long time. They need contracts, and they need networking and, and, and connections. So that's what ICIC tries to provide in cities all over the country. We are growing the program. We were in three cities when I started. We were in 11 cities this year, 15 next year, 20 in 2020. We're adding programs all the time because there's this tremendous thirst out there on the part of business owners for Capacity building, education, coaching, and capital. Those three things change and level the playing field. And that's what I really spend my – I get up every day and I say, how can I change somebody's life by leveling the playing field and giving them the tools they need to compete and win in distressed or underserved communities of this country? And Cheryl, can you remind me when you came to Philadelphia? 96. 96. So around similar time of right. when Michael Porter was looking at this issue – and help paint a picture of Philadelphia, you know, one of the largest cities yeah. in the country. It was, I think it was profoundly different. There was, um, there was a, a kind of lack of the vitality that we have now. And it's, it's interesting because you point at small things like sidewalk cafes, right? I remember when they were first putting them on and people were uncertain about whether they would work or not. And you'd have to walk around things. But it had this sort of... Um, added benefit of making the streets feel safer, right? Because you felt like you could walk then on the streets easier because there were people sitting out there. You know, right. you, you, it didn't feel deserted. And I think that that was one of the key things. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia had for a long time been having a decline in population. And that's been corrected. And I think part of that is because you've got that additional vitality. I think we're still, you know, and Steve, we we're love to hear from you about this. We're, we're still focusing on how we get more of the jobs going and how we get some more small businesses. And that's, that, I think, is the next thing Philadelphia well, we, really has listen, to focus we, on. We judge success of our programs. There are three metrics that we look at. Number one, top-line revenue growth. By the time when you finish our program, we kind of refer to our program affectionately as a 40-hour mini-MBA on steroids. So in Philadelphia, we've been running the program for five years. More than 200 businesses have been through the program over the past five years. Uh, take Angelo Perryman, for example, is a, is a construction company in Philadelphia run by a fellow named Angelo Perryman, and his daughter now runs it, and she's taking over the business. He did all the work or most of the work when the Democratic National Committee came and had the convention in Philadelphia a few years ago. Seventy percent of the businesses we work with are minority-owned. 
more than 50% this year for the first time are woman-owned businesses. Mm. So you're seeing not only at the cafe level, there's a wonderful sort of Mexican restaurant in downtown Philadelphia. I don't remember the name, but I've been there many times. If you walk right across the street, there's this fabulous gelato place, and they've got more than one location. Um, I think you're talking about Elvez and then Capagiro. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So (laughs) Capagiro, I think that's, did I pronounce it right? Capagiro? Yep. Yep. So Capagiro, the owner of that company, went through our program a few years ago, and the owner will say, I am growing my business at a much faster rate and creating way more jobs and getting capital that I couldn't get before because I got the business training that I needed. I perfected my capital pitch, and I was able to get the capital that was heretofore denied to me. Give you one more example. There's a fellow named Chris Haney out in Sacramento, runs a company called DVBE Connect. He's a disabled veteran. He wanted to start a staffing company. He got turned down nine times for capital, went through our program in Oakland last year, came back, and his first pitch that he made to a bank called Five Star Bank in Sacramento, he got an SBA loan, and he's now employing 60 people. He's created 50 new jobs in the last year because he got the education, the capital, and he's got the entrepreneurial bug in his gut. So there's entrepreneurship in this country is exploding everywhere at every level. And the good news is for the first time in years, you're actually seeing capital flowing into inner city, distressed, underserved communities in all forms. Bank financing, alternative debt financing, gap lending, even equity financing has started to flow. And that didn't happen in 1996 when you got to Philadelphia. Yeah, and I think that that's um, really an important point because one of the things we focus on at the Work and Social Impact Initiative really is about how you get capital to where it needs to go, to where it's going to not just sort of make a profit but also make a difference. Um, And we're working with a lot of um, funders who are starting capital funds that are really directed to minority and and women-owned businesses. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there's a wonderful firm out in San Francisco called DBL, DBL meaning for double bottom line. DBL uh, started by a woman, I believe, named Nancy Fund, P-F-U-N-D. So Nancy Fund, a number of years ago, was the first person to fund a company called Revolution Foods, a business started by two women, graduate of the Haas Business School. They had this idea that they could revolutionize school lunches and make them better, more nutritious, at, with, no, with, with no additional cost to the federal government. They've created a business in Oakland called Revolution Foods that now employs about 2,000 people. So Kristen, the, the names of the two women are Kristen and Kirsten. And these two women have done an extraordinary job. They've created a revolution. Would it have happened without DBL? No, it could not have happened without the capital. They've raised money again and again and again. They're doing close to $200 million in business now, and they employ almost 2,000 people, mostly people of diverse backgrounds who desperately need those jobs. That's what leveling the playing field really right. is all about. Right. And so, Steve, you know, you're, you talked about how you're working with entrepreneurs, you know, the, the ICIC program that you considered an MBA on steroids. Um, is that the main focus or what other types of activities does ICIC focus on? So Michael Porter is a research guy. I mean, he's built his reputation. He's really, I would call, say, the global guru of strategy and competitiveness. So we do a lot of research on anchor institutions and on clusters, 
We try to identify in cities the, the clusters that have the capacity to grow at a faster rate because they come together around a certain industry, food, beverage, and hospitality, construction, Milwaukee, it would be water. Um, and we try to focus and help cities accelerate growth based on clusters. So we do a lot of research, thought leadership. And then we run a program now for 20 consecutive years called the Inner City 100. And we recognize the 100 fastest growing inner city businesses in America. These are companies that are growing this year, five-year top-line revenue growth of over 400% over a five-year period. Average revenue this year, over almost $15 million. So we recognize them. We bring them together once a year, as we did in Boston two weeks ago. We did a piece of research on these inner-city companies, and we found a bunch of things that really matter. Number one, manufacturing is not dead in inner cities. 13% of these companies were manufacturing companies. That compares with 4% of all businesses in the United States in manufacturing. So manufacturing is alive, well, and flourishing in inner cities. Number one, if you're willing to provide good benefits to your employees, full package of benefits, paid family leave, 401K, some people say you can't afford it. I would say you can't afford not to do it because the fastest growing companies have great benefits and they retain good workers because of it. Third, the inner city address, as I've addressed earlier, is a competitive advantage. Fourth, anchor institutions matter. The number one nominating partner that we have in Philadelphia for the past five years has been the University of Pennsylvania. We work closely with Penn, and they nominate their suppliers, small suppliers, inner city suppliers that they think could grow and flourish and create more jobs and do more business with the University of Pennsylvania if they have the education, the coaching, and the capital. So I salute Penn, not just because you're associated with Penn, but because Penn has been preeminent in Philadelphia in playing that role. It's, I call it turning moral leadership into positive action. And Steve, and finally, you, you, sort of, you sort of mentioned, I think you kind of alluded to it, but can you help our listeners understand what an anchor institution is? Sure. An anchor institution is a large institution in a city. It's an educational institution like the University of Pennsylvania. It's a hospital or a medical institution like the Massachusetts General Hospital or the Cleveland Clinic. It is a large for-profit company. In Seattle, it might be Microsoft. In Atlanta, it might be Coca-Cola. But they, they buy hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of goods and services every year. So anchor institutions do massive amounts of buying, and if they were to help direct some of their suppliers that need coaching, education, and capital to a program like ours or other programs, they could do way more business with these inner city companies and strengthen the inner cities in which they live. So an anchor institution can be an ed, a med, a for-profit company, a nonprofit like a big museum, or even the federal government and the state government. Anchor institutions drive growth because they have so much purchasing power and they can help these small businesses that they work with get the training they need to accelerate growth, to create good paying jobs in the inner cities of this country, the distressed and underserved communities. Got it. And so I interrupted you before you're getting to the, the final point, but um, thanks for final unpacking that business, for us. Final, final point is that business, business education matters. If you look at the most successful entrepreneurs that we worked with, a thousand companies over the past 20 years, again and again, they'll say that the business education that I got, not necessarily in business school back traditional time in one's life, but the education that I got 
as an older adult, when I was growing a business and struggling to build a business, to go back to learn about marketing and finance and team building and leadership effectiveness, that kind of ongoing business education accelerates growth in a way that otherwise wouldn't happen. So it's a testament to education, but it's a testament to the to the guts, to the guts, what is what's in the basic fabric of entrepreneurs that they know that they can never be satisfied that today is going to be the best day of my life. Tomorrow can be better if I invest and if I go out and always seek to be better today than I was yesterday and better tomorrow than I was today. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, and we are talking to Steve Grossman, the CEO of the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City. And Steve, let's talk a little bit about clusters, because I think that's an interesting concept that mm-hmm. that may not have uh, hit the mainstream. What is a cluster, and how how can understanding what your your sort of city's cluster is, how can that help drive business growth? Well, when businesses that are centered around a certain industry reach critical mass, um, they can, by their very strength and size and clout, attract capital. The best-known cluster that I can give you would be the life sciences cluster up here in the Boston area. Why is that cluster so dominant? Why has it created over 100,000 jobs up in this area that pay well over $100,000 on average, because it brings together universities, research labs, big pharma, venture capital, and uh, all the ingredients are there. In, in c- some cities have a cluster that centers around uh, manufacturing. Some center around Milwaukee has a water cluster. Why water? Because what's the most important product that Milwaukee made over the years? Beer. Beer. So there's a tremendous knowledge about water, water technology, water purification. So there's one building in Milwaukee where there are 17, the last time I was there, 17 companies, and they're all in the water industry. They're all seeking funding. They're all growing. And if you can create a cluster in a certain industry and link that cluster to the regional economy, so it's not just inner city, but it's linked to a growing regional economy with good-paying jobs to educational institutions and to capital, that can accelerate growth. And Michael Porter really created that whole uh, field called cluster analysis, and we do it regularly in cities all over the country. We're doing it now for Kaiser Permanente in the eight regions of the country where they operate, and it's going to affect uh, employment, it's going to affect investment, and it's going to affect the kinds of focus that you make to kind of grow that cluster and accelerate job creation around a certain industry. Every city has food, beverage, and hospitality as a cluster in one way or another, but some cities have done it better. Oakland, California, for example, is creating a, a, a real cluster around food manufacturing. It's because leadership says, we want to do it in the inner city. We want to employ inner city residents. There are plentiful re- residents. We can train them. We can educate them. The cost of real estate is lower in those inner-city neighborhoods because they're distressed and forgotten, although gentrification is changing a lot of that, as we all know. So that's clusters really are a field that is not well-known, but it is the key, it seems to me, to understanding what differentiates you as a city from another city and how can you make that focus uh, a source of growth and economic development, working with political leadership, business leadership, 
and the leadership of educational institutions. And, and that's like a point. Like yeah, Wars. that's a, that's a point I want to follow up on because Nick and I are both Philadelphia residents. Me a little bit longer than him, but you know, committed to doing that. And part of what we're thinking about here, the the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, is precisely how we can. Um, be a driver for growth in Philadelphia. You know, we're we're preeminent business school. Penn is a great anchor institution. We keep thinking that there's there's real opportunity for us to dive deep into Philadelphia and make things happen. So when you talk about leadership, working to identify clusters and build it, what what does that what does that end up looking like? You at the end you'd mention business, political, academic leaders, etc. But how how do you start? It starts with collaboration. If Penn is operating on its own, they can do a lot because they have such clout and purchasing power. But imagine if Penn and Temple and the major hospitals and Comcast and all the major players come together and create an anchor collaboration strategy that accelerates growth and focuses on small business, on I mean, Philadelphia has an emerging manufacturing cluster. And, uh, I, I think Philadelphia will be known 10 years from now as the city that put manufacturing back on the map, as a major city where manufacturing was perceived to be all but dead and buried. But it's all about collaboration. It's all about institutions kind of leaving their egos at the door and coming together and saying, how can we work together? How can we create a set of common principles to collaborate and how can we identify inner-city businesses or just businesses in distressed areas, most of which will be minority-owned or women-owned, but not all? And how can we create that kind of collegial and collaborative approach that can, I mean, one plus one, we, we call that what? Synergy. Mm-hmm. When a small group of people come together and agree on a set of common values, a set of common principles, and common strategies, success will be accelerated and I think that's happening in major cities now. Baltimore is a phenomenal example of it. There's something in Baltimore called BIP, the Baltimore Integration Project, right. which is a collaboration that. of anchor institutions. And Philadelphia is doing much of that as well right now. So, I mean, Philadelphia should not feel like it should take a backseat to any city in terms of the work they're doing. It can always be done more effectively. I think and <laughs> I think we always have a chip on our shoulder here in Philly. Uh, you know, we were, we're a city of firsts, you know, but at the same time, we've been a little forgotten and exactly. there's a chip on. Any, any, any city that has Villanova and the Philadelphia Eagles shouldn't have a chip on their shoulder. <laughs> exactly. Hey, so it sounds like, you know, inclusion, you know, is inclusive growth is sort of baked into what you're doing and but I think we want to make that explicit for our listeners. You know, how do you how does ICIC, the initiative um, for, competitive. for competitive inner city, have, you know, an, an intentional mission around inclusive growth, too? By the way, if anybody wants to know more about us, because I know the time is about to end, ICIC.org is. is our website, ICIC.org. And I would welcome anybody reaching out to me and to talking about this further offline. I mean, intentional growth, it seems to me, is about understanding what your assets are. Do a balance sheet for the city of Philadelphia or any city. What are our principal assets? What are the industries for which we are either known or could be known for? And how do we come together and develop uh, a, a strategy that is intentional about bringing the most important institutions together, the ones that have the money, the clout, the purchasing power? We've created something called an anchor wheel, 
and anchor institutions uh, need to check off every box on that wheel. Am I employing enough people from diverse backgrounds? Am I involved politically in advocating for new policies at the state and federal and local level? Are we purchasing enough goods and services from inner city companies who could be doing way more of our business than they're currently doing? Uh, there's a whole series of steps that one can take, but it really involves sitting regularly together and understanding what are the respect, what are the distinctive competencies, to use an old business school buzzword, what are the distinctive competencies of a city, Philadelphia, St. Louis, San Diego, doesn't matter, and how can we mine those distinctive competencies in a way that can differentiate us from the competition so we can make a case for investors of private capital, debt or equity, that we're a place where you can make a hell of a return on your investment. Because ultimately, this is not money that flows or is going to flow because of some sense of moral obligation. Right. Right. Money's going to flow and go after a return, and inner cities, distressed communities can return on the investment in a way that hasn't been the case for a generation or longer. And, you know, Cheryl, it really reminds me, as, as Steve's talking, that so many cities off the like off the top of my head, they, they want to replicate what's already been done in other cities. Right. They want right? to be the ne- next Silicon Valley. Right. Instead of sort of focusing on like what are our core competencies, right. what, what is our unique put advantage? Your finger on a key thing. If you try to mimic another city, if you try to say, I want to be just like Boston because they've got that great life sciences cluster, never going to work. You've got to understand what are your unique attributes. Be proud of them. Play that card over and over again. Nurture them. Mine them. And it will create accelerated growth, better jobs, and an economy that is going to sizzle to a greater extent and level the playing field for all of its residents. I'll end with this point, because I know we gotta, we got to stop. We're never going to guarantee equal outcomes for everybody, but we sure as heck should get up every morning and say, how do we create equal opportunity? What's the strategy? And how can I work with the next guy to make or the next woman to make it the most successful it can be? And Philadelphia is doing a pretty darn good job of it. But we can always do better. And ICIC is in Philadelphia every year running a program for 75 to 100 inner city entrepreneurs to help make that dream a reality. Excellent. And Steve, I'm going to be following up with you. <laughs> Please do. Well, thanks so much, Steve, for joining us. Cheryl, I think we're going to have to make Philly sizzle, as Steve, as Steve put it. So thanks Sizzle so- like a cheesesteak. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, thanks so much. We've been speaking with Steve Grossman, the CEO of the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City. You can check them out at ICIC.org. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. We'll be talking to the Planet N Group. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.